Hello and welcome everybody to a special edition of the Sport Huddle uh, brought to you by Leeds Hospital Radio Sport. Why is it special? Well, I'm here, aren't I? Um, but apart from that, it's special because we're going to be doing a sports review of the year 2021 and what a year it has been for sport and the world in general. Um, to chew the fat and to put the world to rights about this sporting year, we have got a trio of absolute world-class pundits here um, for you. Oh, actually, sorry, I was told. No, no, they, they're not available. Um, we've got three of the usual. We've got Stuart Taylor, Bernie Thornton and Tony Chalk. Hello, gents. Hello. Hello, Ian. Hi, Ian. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for joining us. And um, we're going to talk, well, big year. So we had the Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, we had Euro 2020. Um, it's been a big footballing year for all of our local teams. Um, the Rhinos did very, very well and um, surpassed all expectations this season. And then really not much gone on at um, Yorkshire Cricket Club. So we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what Bernie can bring on, on that subject um, later on. But we're going to start with the Olympics. Um, it was in Tokyo. Uh, it was without a crowd for most of it. Um, but Tony Chalk is going to talk over um, what exactly happened in those two weeks in August. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I, I guess the first question that we all asked before those delayed 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games was whether they'd go ahead at all. There seemed to be general uncertainty as COVID cases went up in Japan and the local population showed little enthusiasm and distinct unease at the prospects of large numbers from all corners of the globe converging on their capital city. But eventually both events were given the green light, albeit without spectators, as you said, and the world waited to see how this latest manifestation of the new normal would work out. For my part, I had my usual pre-Olympic feelings. Will it be as good as the last one? Is there that much that interests me? Can I really be bothered to go out of my way to watch hours of coverage? The answers were the same as ever. Once it got underway, I was hooked. Sports to which I wouldn't normally give the time of day suddenly became much-watched television. The early morning rush to find out who had grabbed the overnight headlines was part of the daily routine. How would Team GB perform? And who would win the first medal for the Brits? Well, that went to 24-year-old Chelsea Giles, who took bronze in the women's 52-kilogram judo event. So, who would win the first gold medal? Well, it almost came hours after that bronze. But Bradley Sindon was heartbreaking seconds away from clinching the title in the men's 68-kilogram taekwondo final before it was snatched away, and he had to settle for silver. In the end, though, it was destined to be the peerless Adam Peaty, who retained his men's 100-metre breaststroke title to become the first Brit ever to defend an Olympic swimming title. So the bandwagon was up and running, and the juggernaut that is Team GB began to hoover up the medals with seeming inevitability. Now, time doesn't allow me to recite all the 22 gold, 21 silver and 22 bronze medal winners from Britain, so I'm going to mention the performances that still live in my memory. You'll no doubt have your own favourites, and I'm sorry if I don't include them, but hopefully you'll remember some of mine as well. I'm always impressed by those who return to defend a title. That shows real class and resolve in my book, which is why Petey is such a superstar. But there was also the magnificent Max Whitlock, faultless again on the pommel horse. 
And of course, then there are those who just keep coming back and harvesting medals of all colours from different events time after time. And we're not short of them. Think of Jason and Laura Kenny. He at his fourth Olympics, she in her third. After retaining the Kirin title, Jason's Hall now stands at nine medals, seven of which are gold. Whilst Laura has six with five golds, boosted by success in the Madison with Katie Archibald this time around making them the most successful male and female athletes and the most successful married couple of any nationality in Olympic history. As Laura said, she just keeps turning up and seeing what happens. All in all, cycling provided its usual hall of medals, as did the equestrian events, with Charlotte Dujardin equaling Laura Trott's total of six Olympic medals, with bronzes in both team and individual dressage events. Whilst there were goals for the highly impressive three-day event team anchored by Huddersfield's Oliver Townend and for Ben Mayer in the individual show jumping. Sailing also generally proves to be fruitful territory for the Brits and didn't let us down this time. The team topping the table with five medals, three of them gold, including Giles Scott retaining his title in the Finn class. The boxers did pretty good job as well. Two of each colour in a hall of six. And Petey, of course, wasn't the only swimmer to meet with success. Duncan Scott matched him with three medals in the team total of eight, four of them gold. But it's not just the numbers that measure the success of these games. There were the emotional moments as well. Highlights like Tom Daly finally getting his hands on Olympic gold in partnership with Matty Lee from Leeds in the men's synchronised 10 metre event. And Bramhope's Johnny Brownlee completing his set of Olympic medals with gold in the triathlon mixed relay, as well as Holly Bradshaw crowning her career with Britain's first ever medal, a bronze, in the women's pole vault. And Laura Muir's heroics in clinching silver in the win women's 1500 metre final. And on the other side of the coin, and leaving the Team GB bubble briefly, who could have failed to be moved by the trials and tribulations of the great US gymnast? Simone Biles. Of course, it wasn't just the established heroes that brought memorable moments. There were the new stars as well, like another local lad, Tom Pidcock, dominant in taking the men's mountain bike cross-country title. Alex Yee and Georgia Taylor-Brown showing that they are heirs to the Brownleys in claiming silvers in the individual triathlons. Kate French and Joseph Chung doing the double by securing both modern pentathlon championships. Kai White and Bethan Shriver, who bagged silver and gold medals within minutes of each other on the BMX track. And the remarkable Charlotte Worthington, recovering from falling flat on her face in her first run to deliver a spellbinding gold medal winning second run for the BMX freestyle title. And who can forget the surprise and delight of 19 year old Keely Hodgkinson on realising she'd taken silver in the women's 800 metres final or the fresh-faced innocence of Sky Brown, receiving her bronze skateboarding medal at the age of just 13. Yes, there were some disappointments from the GB perspective, notably the lack of gold medals in the rowing regatta and the athletic stadium. But overall, the memories of Tokyo are overwhelmingly happy. 65 medals to equal the total at London 2012. And that's before we even get on to the Paralympics, where the likes of the ever-reliable Hannah Cockcroft, Kadena Cox, Sir Lee Pearson and the great Dame Sarah Story powered Great Britain to a magnificent 124 medals and second place in the table. And finally, a word for the hosts. 
Not easy holding global events like these in the midst of a pandemic and without spectators, but the overall impression was that they did an outstanding job. Well done, Japan. Roll on Paris 2024. Thank you very much, Tony. Um, Excellent synopsis of the Olympics there. It was such a memorable two weeks. Um, Stuart and Bernie, I mean, I remember like waking up and wondering like, oh, is the taekwondo on today? And then like, I want to watch the judo. And it was just getting into sports that, you know, you don't even know exist at sometimes. Bernie, go to you first. Yeah, um, yeah, very good, Tony. A, a really good summary, and uh, it, it just reinforces how good it was to watch such high-quality sport at a time when we'd seen very little live international sport for for such a long time. And uh, I think we're all agreed it was great to watch it. There were some fantastic performances from everybody. Um, I don't want to be a prophet of doom here, but uh, I've just got one uh, word of caution after all this. And uh, this is that uh, I know in, in Tokyo itself, the, there wasn't an awful lot going on aside from the uh, uh, in the uh, surroundings of the uh, Olympics. It was the Olympics and not much else. I don't think the locals uh, took much part in it because for, for obvious reasons, COVID. And um, even once COVID gets put to bed, which, uh, well, it won't, it'll probably never get put to bed, but it will become less of a concern for all of us. But then we've got the question of international travel and how much of that's going to be possible in the future for reasons of watching sport, which are going to be quite a long way down the priority list. So that's just my concern about uh, international sport in the longer term. And um, uh, as I said, I don't want to be too uh, despondent about it for what was a really good uh, tournament, uh, Olympic uh, um, Games. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, let's enjoy it while we can. Absolutely. Stuart, um, your thoughts? Bernard, you are indeed the prophet of doom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tony, I, I have to congratulate you on that uh, review, and I look forward to reading it in the Yorkshire Post review of the uh, the year uh, shortly. That was that was excellent. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, you're right, Ian. Uh, the, the, particularly with the uh, with the time gap, you know, you sort of switch on the TV at uh, 11 p.m. Uh, and uh, wonder what's uh, what's going to happen during the course of the. Uh, of the evening and uh, you get uh, captivated by BMX cycling and by the time you know it, it's two o'clock in the morning and uh, it's probably three or four hours past your bedtime. Um, but the highlight of the games for me, and, and uh, Tony referred to it actually in his report, was actually seeing Johnny Brownlee uh, finally win a, a gold medal because uh, yeah. uh, you know he's, he's been pretty much in the in the shadow of his brother, of course. Uh, and uh, that was one event that I started watching around about midnight and I just couldn't uh, leave it alone until Johnny Brownlee and his, uh, his colleagues had got across the line, uh, to win the gold. And it was, it was, it was a great, great moment of, of celebration, I have to say. And, um, and also, uh, we might talk about sports, sports personality of the year later, but, um, I, I have to, I have to mention Tom Daly, um, yeah, there are, you know, Olympics is full of, uh, uh, of athletes who go back time and again and win gold. But to win gold at your fourth Olympics is outstanding, in my view. Um, 
well deserved. I mean, he first went to the Olympics at some ridiculous age, like 13, was it? Yeah, uh, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's yeah. still you know he's still there for a young man, but to uh, uh, to go through uh, so many successive train training regimes to uh, to to qualify and then uh, you know step onto the uh, the diving board is a fantastic achievement, and to, uh, I was absolutely chuffed to bits for him to uh, to for him to. Get the gold alongside uh, Matty Daly, of course, who uh, who won his won his first, and uh, it was a great performance. No, as ever, it was e- even without the. It was a real shame, of course, that it was behind uh, closed doors, but uh, that didn't diminish from the uh, you know from the TV viewing uh, drama mm. we, we we witnessed during that time, and uh, yeah. I look forward to um, it'll be three years time, I think, won't it? Before. Paris twenty four. Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, let's not let's not be hasty. I mean, yes, COVID permitting, the Winter Olympics are in February. So of course. Uh, Beijing, um, who become now, you three can tell me if this is true. They are the first city to host both the summer and the winter games. Mm. That's what I heard at the weekend. Yeah. That's, yeah. That sounds, so I thought that's Tokyo had, but Tokyo mm-hmm. has had the Summer Olympics twice, but I don't think it's had. Yeah, Sapporo, I think, had the winter, didn't mm. it? Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Japan has had both, but mm. Beijing as a city is going to have both, and that's that's the first time. Um, more facts later, fact fans. Um, so um, I'm going to have to um, f- uh, ask for your forgiveness. I'm going to be doing this off the half. I'm going to be talking about Euro 2020 as we've had um, uh, and uh, someone um, said that he couldn't come and do this recording. So um, Euro 2020 and it was, um, well, I'm going to say it, it was the tournament of my life, seeing my country in a tournament final for the first time in my life. It was such a... It was such a wonderful summer, and it's like um, some of you guys maybe I'm not sure. I mean, you're all you know young, 21, aren't you? But you know, some of you may have been around for '66, so would know what that we, was. We, Ian, don't beat about the all, all of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to tell us how it was, Ian? <laughs> yeah, um, honestly, like. In my life, we reached the semi-final of the World Cup in 1990. We reached the semi-final of Euro 96. And then we reached the semi-final in Russia 2018. So then to actually reach a final is just absolutely, it was it was fantastic. And then that minute when we went 1-0 up in the final, it was just, the it was the greatest buzz I've ever had as an England fan. And it was just incredible. And it, what was, Italy deservedly won it. I, I, absolutely. They were the best team throughout the tournament. They thoroughly deserved the uh, the victory. But they only beat us on penalties. And that says a lot for me about how good England were as well. Um, it was a great tournament. Um, and no one will forget the uh, England-Scotland game. Um, the, that first time we've played each other competitively since... Um, Oh, yeah, the World Cup qualifiers for 2018. But it was an amazing atmosphere, considering there was only 16,000, 17,000 in at Wembley. Um, the Scots made their voices heard, and it was such a local derby uh, game. 
Um, but yep, yeah, England qualified for the group and then they played Germany in the second round. And what a game and atmosphere that was um, as England won 2-0. Um, special mention to Raheem Sterling, who scored pretty much all of England's goals early on and was an absolute star up there for England. And um, he gets a lot of stick, does Raheem Sterling, and not a lot of it is nice. But I've got so much respect for him, and um, I think he's one of England's better players and and better performers. Um, Harry Kane scored the second. Then we went to Rome and beat the Ukraine, sorry, Ukraine, 4-0, in what was an absolutely fantastic display. And then the semi-final, and um, we rode our luck, I think you can say, in the semi-final as we beat Denmark 2-1. Kasper Schmeichel. Uh, kept us out a fair few times, but um, England got the result. And yes, it was a penalty. Um, and then we got to the final and uh, when Luke Shaw scored that goal. But um, as I say, Italy were fantastic throughout the tournament and they deservedly won their Euro 2020. Um, apparently, Italy are going to be playing Argentina in a um, Euro versus South American Champions game and it's going to be in London um, at some point next year. That's going to be something to look forward to. But yeah, Euro 2020 for me is one of the best summer tournaments I've witnessed in my lifetime. And um, I, I just think Gareth Southgate is the one and um, he's going to take us to glory. Um, if not next year, then in 2024. Um, uh, you three, uh, give me your thoughts on the Euros, not on what I've just done. <laughs> that was a wa- waffle. <laughs> it was not a load of waffle, actually. It summed it up very well, I thought. And, Thank uh, you. So it summed up um, the emotions that we all had, I guess, going through it. Yeah, it, um, certainly one of the more enjoyable tournaments, uh, if only for the fact, of course, that that, that England did get to the final. Uh, but the fact that uh, they were able to play uh, most of their games at Wembley, obviously, must have must yeah. have helped them. Even though some of them were, I can't remember, were, were some of them in front of no crowds? They were certainly in front of limited crowds early on, weren't they? It was all um, limited, yeah. It was yeah, all limited. Um, but but uh, that, that must have given them a sort of a, a sense of perhaps calmness and familiarity being in those surroundings. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you about Southgate. I, I think he's done a very good job. Uh, I mean, we've seen uh, England managers in the past with, uh, with, with, you know, some decent, talented players at their disposal. I mean, the golden generation, what was it, 20 years ago? And yeah. uh, they got to a couple of quarterfinals, I think. Um, yeah. So he, he's clearly got, got something going there. Um, it's just a shame that the old problem of penalties came back and haunted us again um, uh, at the end. Uh, but but I suppose on the downside, um, what happened uh, with the crowd uh, at that match at, at Wembley, the final, uh, will will be a, a stain on the tournament uh, yeah. and may well, of course, prove, uh, prove, prove to be uh, a great handicap uh, in England's bid to try and get the... Uh, the World Cup in, I think it's 2030, isn't it? They're going for. Yeah. Um, so there, there are still problems with with idiots uh, around the fringe of football, and, and unfortunately, some of them descended there on the final. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it, yeah. It was it was a great tournament, um, as we've uh, 
Or he said, Tony, Bernie and I are not saddled with not having seen England win a major tournament before, but uh, that will be for another day. Uh, but, uh, at the uh, June the 30th, was it? 1966 was a magnificent... July. 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 I can remember it like it was yesterday, apart from the date. Uh, <laughs> and I can remember as a seven-year-old uh, immediately after the game, having watched it with my dad and granddad, going outside and kicking a football around and uh, generally being very excited. Um, but uh, it, it was it was a great tournament. There was a lot of very, very good football played. Um, the highlight for me, actually, was uh, not having seen... Um, England beat Germany too many times since mm. uh, 1966. The highlight was that quarter final yeah. uh, because actually they won so comfortably as well. There was, yeah, um, yeah I, I was expecting it to be a night of, uh, of high drama, of, uh, of uh, nerve shredding tension. Uh, but uh, certainly in our living room, uh, things were quite calm uh, because uh, England, I thought that was their best performance of the tournament and uh, they they dominated which probably wasn't the best german side we've ever seen but um you know th- there's history and uh, yeah. it, it needed to be uh, it needed to be overcome and, and and overcome it they did and i think that's when probably we as a as a nation thought hang on we might actually we might actually win this mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. uh, but i do agree with you ian uh, from an early stage i thought italy looked uh, looked really on the money and, uh, uh, you know, not only were they very defensively strong from the outset, and they always start tournaments very defensively strong, yeah. but uh, from the outset they were scoring goals. Uh, and yeah. uh, I think that was the that was the difference, and that's what made my mind up, that they were the clear favourites. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I thought the fact that, uh, you know, we only lost on penalties. You know, we didn't, uh, we didn't yeah. lose a game. We didn't lose a game throughout the whole tournament. So I think that... Yeah. Uh, that uh, demonstrates how far uh, uh, Gareth Southgate's come with, um, you know, with a group of young players, and I think, um, you know, the future's um, the future's bright. Yeah, the future's bright. The future's white and red and and, <coughs> and <coughs> blue. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> Bernie. Yes, um, that's a lot to add. Really. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, really impressed with the quality of the football throughout. Some might say that's because I watch too much Huddersfield Town football. But um, <laughs> it's, I, I, I was uh, obviously Italy were uh, quality, as everybody said so far. But uh, some of the really good football came from unexpected sources. I'm thinking about Denmark, and obviously the, the, um, the, they were positively influenced in the end by uh, what happened with Ericsson, and um, there was a lot of focus on Denmark. I thought they did really well. Uh, Switzerland, I remember playing some really good football as well, got some good results. And, uh, not least England, uh, of course, England, um, they, they, they really did look a quality side at times, and uh, there's not, not that often we've been able to say that. So, but very enjoyable, uh, apart from the caveat of the, uh, uh, the mayhem at Wembley in the final, which is sad, but, um, uh, yeah, good, good, good uh, entertainment on the field throughout. Definitely, I think. The trouble at Wembley, I think, is a is a point of where we are as a country at the moment, not alone just the football, but it does seem to be going back to the dark days of the 70s and 80s. Um, but I just hope that was a one-off um, and that proper England fans can carry on supporting their team um, over the years. 
So yeah, Ian, if I can just put in on that, I I I hope it was a one-off, and and it just may well be that the um, the organisers were just caught on the hop on 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 that occasion. I I, I guess you know, I mean, the organisation. And the security that's in force for, um, you know, for, for Premier League games, uh, and probably for, for most internationals <laughs> is, uh, I, th- I think is, uh, is pretty good. And it, it just may well be that, uh, the, the, you know, they were, they, they were caught on the hop for a, for a game of that magnitude. Let's, let, let, let's hope so. And I, yeah. well, I'm certainly by, by no means uh, attempting to diminish, uh, what happened. And, uh, and of course, uh, you know, England have got, uh, the usual light punishment actually as a result of that, which is one game behind closed doors, which, uh, you know, doesn't mean much really, but no, you know. but yeah, let's hope it was just a one off. <laughs> so yeah. we've, um, we've had Euro 2020. We'll talk local football again in a bit. Um, cause I don't want football football. Um, I want to spread this out a wee bit. So, but I am going to you, Stuart. Um, I'm are you? Uh, I am. Um, our Super League expert, as regular listeners will know, um, Stuart is going to talk to us about uh, the Leeds Rhinos year of 2021 and Rugby League. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's start with Rhinos. Uh, and I guess a five word summary would be it could have been much worse, actually, um, given the fact that it was a difficult season, I think, for, for the Rhinos. Um they certainly, throughout the season, it just felt that they didn't have a settled spine. Uh, there were players playing out of position. And uh, if you think that Leeds United have got a, 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 a an injury problem at the moment, then certainly Rhinos uh, had that for what seemed like uh, most of the season. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they only won, they only won two of their opening seven Super League games. They were both against uh, the Wildcats, actually. And uh, because of Lee Centurion's uh, poor form, there was never any real danger of the Rhinos being relegated. But uh, the playoffs really looked like a distant prospect. So to finish fifth at the end of the season with all the issues that they went through throughout the season, I think they played something like 14 different halfback partnerships across 27 games, you know. Um, that's not a way to 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 get a settled side really, because uh, yeah. that halfback partnership partnership in rugby league is, is is all important. So to reach the the Super League semi-finals was really, I think, a a, a decent achievement and a, and a success of of sorts uh, for the Rhinos. I'm, I'm sure, you know, in elite sport and Richard Ago and his team will not look back at it as that. But I think in in the cold light of day, I think when you look back, you think that um, they they did well to finish uh, where they were in the playoffs. But uh, I suppose to pour a bit of cold water on it, that 36 points to eight defeat against St Helens in the uh, semi final really highlighted the gap between the Rhinos and the and the top clubs, or certainly the gap between the Rhinos and uh, St. Helens and Catalans. And, uh, you know, the Rhinos lost all three games against St. Helens uh, last season, uh, lost both their games against Catalans and, and um, you know, by, by some distance. However, they did nil Wigan twice <laughs> at the DW. So they nil, they nil them for the first time ever at the DW in August in the league, and then a month later, 
they went and nilled them again in the yeah. playoffs. So, uh, you know, Rhinos fans can look back on that with some uh, uh, with some pleasure, I guess. The forward pack looks strong and, uh, you know, looking forward to 2022. I think that looks uh, quite promising, actually, um, particularly as they've recruited uh, two halfbacks. They've got Blake Austin and uh, Aiden Seagar coming in from uh, from Warrington Bulls and, uh, and, and the Giants. Um, so hopefully they can uh, stay free of injury and that uh, we can look forward to a, a, a successful uh, 2022 season for the Rhinos, which, of course, we will be covering in full, or at least we will be covering all the home games of the Rhinos in 2022 uh, right here on Lease Hospital Radio Sport. Uh, so that's the Rhinos. Um, and just very quickly to sum up the Rugby League se- uh, season, two words, St. Helens. <laughs> that's all that's needed, Stuart. That is all that's needed. They um... dominant, dominant in both in, and I have yeah. to say, you know, in the men's and the women's mm. version yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. of the games, they took uh, they took Super League and Challenge Cup in in both versions. So, uh, um, you know, they St Helens set the standard uh, with their red V's on their shirts. And uh, certainly that's uh, that's the standard that one hopes uh, the rhinos, both the men and the women's version of the rhinos, will uh, aspire to in, in, in 2022 and beyond. Definitely. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Thank you. Um, yeah, the rhinos did so much better than anyone expected. And it was uh, it was a good ride to be on um, as the season came to an end. Um, getting to the playoffs and everything. It was fantastic. And as Stuart says, we're covering it all next year. Um, right, Bernie, um, I've given you the topic of Yorkshire County Cricket Club for 2021. Um, right, we have half an hour left, so can you uh, <laughs> can you try and keep it down <laughs> a little? Uh, I, I, I certainly will, Ian. Um, um, <coughs> Despite Stuart's rather unkind comment earlier about me being a prophet of doom, uh, <laughs> you, you, you well know, Ian, that I am a glass half full man. Absolutely, so you are. I've, yes. I've, I've tackled this one on uh, on the basis that I'm going to be looking for the positives in uh, of 2021 for Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Good lad. Go on then. Now then. <laughs> <laughs> I I found one or two. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll give you um, I'll give you three. Yeah. Um, they, they they qualified for the final stages of all three competitions, which I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, a, a serious point, I thought, uh, and this happens most seasons with certain players, but it was a very important season for Harry Brook. Uh, for Matthew Fisher, uh, every, everybody knows how good a player Fisher is and he's capable of being, but fitness was a problem for him. And um, one of the, uh, w- w- who may have been seen as a journeyman cricketer uh, previously, Jordan Thompson. And those three players did really well for Yorkshire. They had really good seasons and they've come out of it very well. Fisher stood up to the rigours of a season well. Uh, Harry Brook needed more than anybody needed a good season and he's had one and uh, Jordan Thompson has uh, now, uh, well, he, he, if he carries on, he's had another season like he has done, he'll be certainly knocking on the door of the uh, 
national selection. So that that's probably the the, the best thing that's come out of the season. Um, I've also uh, just going a stage down to second eleven and academy cricket, and again I'll come back to that. But uh, there's been some really good performances there, and uh, I think in the uh, in, in the lower ranks Yorkshire have got a, a lot to look forward to. That none of that can mask the fact that it was a disappointing season on the field for Yorkshire, and uh, and that's just a plain season. So. Uh, so the, the the competition that really mattered, of course, to Yorkshire members and supporters is the championship. And Yorkshire finished second in the group stage of the championship by just the one point. And if that wasn't bad enough, the team who picked them at the post were Lancashire. Stuart sort of got his, uh, his cricket ball out as if he's going to throw it through the screen to me. Um, but yeah, uh, sadly they didn't do anything in the final stages and you can put that down to all kinds of reasons. Uh, there were COVID influences, there were, there, there was weather, they were pretty unlucky on a, a couple of occasions. But the bottom line is in the championship, Yorkshire just were not consistent enough and therefore they, uh, they, they, they came away, uh, without any silverware again. A uh, similar story in the T20 Blast, finished third in the table in the group stages and uh, qualified for the last eight, as they often do. Lost to Sussex, bizarrely, in a home game at the Riverside Stadium at Durham. Would Yorkshire have won had it been in front on, on home turf at Henningley? Well, we don't know, and frankly, it doesn't really matter, because that was a game that they, they really should have won and, and didn't do. And uh, the much derided Royal London Cup, which has been almost denigrated to second team status. Not not quite, but um, as I said earlier, there's been some really good performances. Yorkshire started off badly in that competition, came through well in the end to qualify for the final stages. And I, I personally watched a couple of those games. A game at York Cricket Club stands out in my memory. It was a lovely day. It was a great game of cricket against Warwickshire. And Yorkshire won handsomely. So uh, more of that for next season uh, for, for me, hopefully. So uh, yeah, um, so, so, some good in parts for Yorkshire, but at the end of the day, just not good enough. No silverware in the cabinet. So that's just the uh, playing season. <laughs> Then, of course, we come on to the autumn and the Azim Rafiq situation. Now, with uh, the, it's all been said about this, and uh, I, I certainly don't propose to go into uh, that on, on this occasion, or at all for that matter. But um, I will just pose two questions, which I don't think have been properly answered as yet. Whether they will be in time remains to be seen. How on earth did Yorkshire get to this ultimate catastrophic situation? And it is potentially catastrophic. And why or why didn't someone in charge see the writing on the wall? Uh, I've got no answers for that. I don't know if anybody has, but there there have been serious failings. And of course, we've all seen the fallout from that. So we're uh, we're at rock bottom. We're starting on the way up. The people in charge at the moment, and there will be more added, obviously, as time goes on. Lord Kamlesh Patel and Darren Goff as managing director. So... They've not been slow to act, and that's good to see. And it's just been announced in the last couple of days, and some of our listeners will know about this, some may not. 
Yorkshire have forged a partnership with the Lahore Calanders of the Pakistan Super League. And um, this is going to be quite high profile stuff. There are objectives that are set out. There's going to be a player exchange uh, arrangement going on between the two clubs. There will be two-way scholarships between the two clubs. There'll be, uh, apparently, the Lahore Calanders have a, a, a top-of-the-range player development programme, which Yorkshire can learn lessons from. And there'll be uh, a, 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 an academy swap as well. There's going to be a friendly match in Lahore on the 16th of January next year. So less than a month before that takes place. And finally, Yorkshire will have the services of Pakistan international Harish Ralph, who's uh, done pretty well in uh, various forms of the game at test level, test and um, ODI level. So um, that's that's great. That sounds very, very positive and full credit to the powers that be for putting this in place. My question is, where is the money going to come from for this? Because we all know that Yorkshire are stymied for money. They, uh, the, the sponsors were, uh, couldn't get away from the club fast enough for, for obvious reasons. Uh, I can only think that there has, have been promises behind the scenes that Yorkshire will get backing from various sources. But it will, I'm sure, come with lots of provisos that things have to be done. And uh, it'll be interesting to see just how that develops. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting scenario. There's an awful lot of work to be done between now and the start of the English season in April, or possibly in the end of March. But uh, it, it, there won't be there won't be a dull moment in Yorkshire. You can be sure of that. And uh, we, of course, will be following that on Leeds Hospital Radio Sport. I've no doubt. So um, I don't know if that's. Um, uh, I, I don't think I've uh, exceeded the time limit here, and I hope not no. anyway. But no, perhaps no. a bit of food for thought there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Stuart, uh, Bernie. Honestly, such a, a, a tough year to, to talk about um, in cricketing terms, but also off the field. And, um, and Bernie, you did it superbly well there. So thank you very much for that. Um, just to mention for my boys, by the way, Nottinghamshire, one of the best years we've had cricketing wise in, well, God knows how long. Um we didn't win a championship game for three years and then we went and won loads this year. So it was really good. Um, enough and of that. Yeah. And you'll start the season uh, in the second division. Which yeah. Yes, we will. Yeah. You might not. No, you might not. Yeah, you might not. You somewhere. Yeah, uh, that was a it was an excellent report by Bernie. I'd, I'd just like to answer one question that he posed as to whether Sussex would have uh, achieved a victory at Headingley in that uh, in the game that was played on neutral territory in Durham. Well, the answer is probably they would have, given that uh, when I switched on my TV to watch it and the boundaries were halfway towards the wicket, and the reason for that was that um, Yorkshire had uh, asked for the boundaries to be laid out in exactly the same dimension as if the game had being played at Headingley. Yeah. So on that basis, Sussex would have won just as easily as they did at the Riverside. Which wasn't very easily at all. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was easy in the end. Yeah. Just, uh, just throwing what, what, one thought, uh, really supporting what Bernie said about the controversy. Um, I went to a meeting a couple of weeks ago where Devon Malcolm was the speaker and uh, he, he was asked, in fact, I asked him about this particular issue and he gave, I thought, what was a very sensible uh, and, and uh, straightforward answer. 
He said, I, I've no idea what went on. Uh, I don't know anything about Rafiq, what sort of a character he is. Uh, but what I do know is that Yorkshire could have stopped this um, because you get a report that says yeah. that there have been incidences uh, and people are guilty in certain cases. And you turn around and say no action is going to be taken. You are asking for trouble. And had yeah. they done something at that stage and nipped it in the bud, Absolutely. a lot of this could have been avoided. And I thought it was spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And on, uh, on, on a note for next season, Harris Ralph is seriously quick. Um, so I certainly look forward to seeing him uh, uh, performing at Headingley. It's a, that's a good signing. Absolutely. And we'll be covering Yorkshire, hopefully, um, cricketing allowed, COVID allowed, um, <laughs> all year next year as well here on Leeds Hospital Radio Sport. So, um, right, Stuart, it's your chance again. Uh, this time we're going to be chatting, uh, you're going to be chatting local football the season for Leeds and Huddersfield, um, the teams we cover, and a little bit of Bradford as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep this as, as brief as possible, really, because we've, we've got a bit to do yet. Um, yes. If, if, if I start with Leeds, a year of two halves, I would say, 2021. On the 1st of January this year, Leeds were in 11th place in the Premier League in their first season back in the big time and attracting much positive media attention and praise of course for their uh, for their style of play under Marcelo Bielsa and they continued to impress and um, eventually finished the uh, the season in ninth place um, with Arsenal and Spurs immediately above them and only three points off a European place so uh, you know plenty to be really really positive about uh, in in their first season back in the Premier League and of course they won the plaudits of uh, of uh, many a pundit and uh, uh, an opposition manager so it was a great season, first season back I have to say for me the highlight was probably the victory away at, at the Etihad at Manchester City uh, in April um, they won 2-1 it was a Stuart Dallas double. Stuart Dallas, the player of the season, without doubt, in terms of his uh, versatility and uh, work ethic. Um, I think, uh, if I remember rightly, Dallas scored the first after about 40 minutes. I think that was Lee's first shot on target. Then <laughs> uh, five minutes later, just before half-time, uh, captain Liam Cooper was sent off. Um, and it was a real back-to-the-wall performance in the second half. Man City equalised through the appropriately named for this time of year, Jesus, or Jesus, uh, in the English translation. And then in the 92nd minute, upstepped uh, the hero Stuart Dallas to, uh, uh, to, to, to win against um, the, the runaway leaders of the Premiership at uh, Premier League at that time, Manchester City. So I think for fans, that was, a, that was just a fantastic, uh, uh, a fantastic performance. So great first season. Um, second season, well, the, the, one could say, I think increasingly that, you know, the, the, the feel is that it's a second season syndrome. I'm not too convinced about that. And, uh, you know, the, everybody knows about the, uh, the injury list that, uh, it leaves us sustained this year. And, uh, you know, what, what concerns me is, is every week you look at the bench and you've just got, um, you've just got a raft of, of teenagers on the bench who've no Premier League 
experience. And I know that Alan Hansen once once said that you, you don't win anything with kids and it was proved to be wrong. Uh, but that was uh, a one off and that was Manchester United with the class of 92. Um, but I think there is some co- cause for concern. I, I, I think there have been some below par performances uh, so far this season, uh, which results in Leeds as we speak in 16th with only three wins, you know, from 18 games. Uh, they've lost the last three, although they've been, been against uh, uh, some of the top sides. They had that 7-0 thumping this time at Man City, uh, which was uh, pretty um, uh, pretty traumatic to watch. Um, and I, I just fear also that um, that some of, well, I, I think the teams have worked out to some extent clearly how Leeds play. I think there's a big difference between watching videos that they were in the first season and then actually uh, having experienced it and uh, been able to set up against them um, this season. So, yeah, for, for, for Leeds United, very much a, a year of two halves. Going forward uh, for the rest of this season, what do I see? I, I don't see any, any fear of relegation, frankly. I think we can dismiss that. Um, I think that... Um, yeah, we'll we'll just get through this uh, this period period of tough tough fixtures against the um, against the top six. I know Calvin Phillips is still going to be out for a while, um, but I think once we get um, the the majority of the first picks picks back to fitness, I'm I'm, I'm convinced that um, um, there's um, there's enough quality in the uh, in, in certainly in the first team picks. Uh, to see them through uh, to uh, uh, to a, a decent finish. My one cloud on the horizon is what Marcelo Bielsa might choose to do at the end of the season. I think he'll see it through to the end of the season, but I think the, the decision will then be, uh, will he go home? And, and he may well do. So that's Leeds. Uh, move on to Huddersfield Town. Now, I'm conscious that uh, Bernard could, um, uh, could speak... Um, with much more um, uh, knowledge than I can about this, but um, Towns, uh, again, Towns' second t- season as it was back in the Championship was, really was tough. Um, and they finished uh, at the end of the 2021 season 20th in the league. And for some time, it was just looking like they might get involved in, well, they were involved in a relegation battle, actually. Uh, and it was only, what, two or three games before the end that uh, they found a vital victory or so and uh, managed to feel just fit, uh, finish just above the relegation zone. But, you know, the thing about town last year, you, it really was, it was a season of transition. Uh, Carlos Cobran had come in from uh, uh, being assistant at, uh, at Leeds. Um, Huddersfield somewhat controversially had, had moved on uh, the Cowley uh, duo at the end of the previous season to put uh, Corbran in charge. And Town, actually, I was just looking at the stats, they moved out 22 players last season. Uh, admittedly, most of them in 2020, and I know we're talking about 2021, but they moved 22 players out and brought 18 in. So that, um, that really does confirm for me that uh, that really was a, a season of transition, and, and uh, you know I think that sort of puts uh, fans' expectations, I think, into some perspective, and the performance into some perspective. We're now in the um, we're now in 2021-22 season. Uh, Huddersfield, 
consistent this season only probably by their inconsistency, Bernard, I, I would say. Um, but as we uh, as we broadcast um, just before Christmas, they're sitting 10th in the table and they're only two points off the playoffs, you know. So uh, things ain't bad in uh, in town's second season under Corbron. Uh, he's got some issues. The players are drifting in and out of form. Uh, but the the home form has been generally good um, with one or two blips. Their away form hasn't been too great, although, um, you know, last Saturday they went and won very comfortably at Bristol City 3-1. But um, so I, I, I'm certainly expecting uh, an, an improvement, uh, the improvement that town are showing this season to continue through the through to the end of the season. Will they make the playoffs? Not too sure about that. I think there are there are other sides around. I, I'm I'm convinced that Middlesbrough are going to storm through and get into the playoffs. They look really strong. Stoke City will be there or thereabouts. And then you've got West Brom, Fulham and uh, and Bournemouth to think about. And and, and one other that I, I can't think about at the moment, but the, there's probably one other than, than Town that are going to fill, fill the sixth. So that's Town for you. And uh, a quick word on Bradford City. Well, of course... Um, Start of 2021, we'd just seen the end of Stuart McCall in his third spell at uh, Bradford City, and it wasn't before time, actually. I'd seen them at the end of uh, 2020 on a couple of occasions at Valley Parade, and it was absolutely dismal. And uh, Stuart McCall had clearly lost the faith. Uh, And uh, he was replaced by Mark Truman and Scott Sellers, um, the two rookie uh, coaches who were brought in to, uh, in the first instance, to... uh, uh, to fill in the gap, uh, but uh, form in uh, the early part of uh, of this year picked up uh, so dramatically that uh, Truman and Sellers were placed in permanent charge. Um, and not long after they were placed in permanent charge, then the city's form started to fall off, and uh, they'd sort of gone on a great charge from being not far off the uh, a, a, a relegation scrap to uh, on the verge of the playoffs, but it, it fell away at the end. And then there was again probably the rather controversial decision to move Truman and Sellers on. Uh, Derek Adams came in, the experienced manager, had already won promotions with the likes of Plymouth Argyle and Morecambe. Uh, but uh, where are City so far? Well, um, <clears throat> you know the expectation every year I think for City is that um, they're going to get promoted out of the uh, second division uh, back to the first and then uh, move on to where fans think they belong but uh, it looks as though it's going to be a tough old task for Derek Adams they're not converting draws to wins they're currently 16th uh, they're seven points off the playoffs but only 10 points off the bottom two so um, it'll be a big transfer a January transfer window I think for uh, for Derek Adams and uh, I think he's got this opportunity uh, to uh, to to bring in some some quality into the team uh, and particularly a goal scorer uh, to convert some of the chances that they clearly are making to ensure that they achieve the uh, the ambition both of the board or should I say across the board the fans and also the manager himself who's come in you know, with one one target only to achieve promotion for Bradford City this season. And uh, if he doesn't do it, then I expect there'll be a change uh, at the end of this season. So for City, um, it, it's still doable, but uh, they yeah. certainly need to start uh, converting draws into wins. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Go on. Um, so 
that's football. That's local football. We have around seven minutes, eight minutes left. So we're going to talk um, what our favourite moments of the year and what our um, sports personality of the year is. Um, we'll give Stuart a breather because he's just been chatting for a while. So we'll go to Tony first. Um, and um, yeah, your your favourite sporting moment and your sports personality. Uh, well, I think they both come down to the same thing, actually. Um, uh, U.S. Open uh, women's tennis, um, Emma Raducanu, uh, first qualifier ever to win a Grand Slam title. Uh, she first came upon the scene uh, at Wimbledon, of course, when she uh, she got through the first week. Uh, most people in the country, I suspect, apart from those sort of closely involved in tennis, have probably never heard of her. Um, and she did very well uh, in that first week, caught the imagination of the public. Then uh, in the, I think it was the fourth round, the last 16, um, she, she had some breathing difficulties and in the end had to retire. Um, and we all thought, oh, well, you know, she'll be the better for that and she'll come back strong next season. Um, and lo and behold, she turns up at the US Open, gets through qualifying, which was an achievement in itself. Uh, and then breezes through to the final uh, and won against uh, Fernandez, the Canadian in the final, who was, uh, I think, either the same age or a year older than her. Um, and, and every match that she won there was just quite remarkable, actually. Um, uh, she, I think she beat Belinda Bencic, who was the Olympic champion somewhere uh, on the way through. Was it the last 16 or the quarterfinal? Uh, and then uh, Maria Sakari, the, the the Greek, I think, in the semi-final. And each time you just sort of thought, oh, this is this is remarkable. Uh, and, and then fortunately, I, I wasn't able to watch any of it, of course, because it was on Amazon Prime. Uh, but the <laughs> final was shown on terrestrial television uh, yes. on, on Channel 4. And uh, I remember watching it and it was extremely tense, I have to say. Uh, but she uh, she did it. She came through uh, and uh, despite getting a sort of an injury in the in the last game when she was serving for the match in, in the second set, she got through that. Uh, and when she got to uh, match point on her serve, she did what the great champions always do and hammered an ace down and, and secured it. So that for me, the moment of the year and Emma Raducanu, as she was. Uh, indeed elected by the uh, BBC viewers last week, uh, deservedly Sports Personality of the Year, in my view. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Tony. Uh, Bernie, go on, son. Your favourite moment and your sports personality. Right. Well, I've uh, I've got three, if you'll permit me, Ian, but I will be yes. brief. Um, I'm with Tony 100% on the what I've described as the Sports Achievement of the Year, Emma Raducanu, uh, at the time, someone likened it to Geisley winning the FA Cup. Well, I'm going further than that because that uh, Geisley winning the FA Cup would be a, a, a great thing for a, a national event. This is international sport we're talking about. Yeah. And I'd say it's more like Gibraltar winning the World Cup at football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was cool. a fantastic achievement, and Tony's outlined it far better than I can. So she's my sports personality, sport, sporting achievement of the year, if you like. I've also got a sporting hero for you. And uh, Stuart will be delighted to know that this chap is a Lancastrian by birth and he's currently earning his living outside Yorkshire in a different sport. But he'll forever be associated with one of the clubs we're most associated closely with, with here at Leeds Hospital Radio Sports. And if you haven't guessed by now, I'm talking about Kevin Sinfield. Because th this is a man who, uh, long after his retirement as a player, he's pushed the boundaries of endurance 
and he's uh, raised, raised over two million pounds by running 101 miles in 24 hours in aid of motor neurone disease and, of course, his close friend Rob Burrow. And this is on top of raising a similar amount a year earlier. So um, he's my hero for this year in any year, quite frankly. And uh, on a slightly lighter note, if uh, I've, I've got one here for funniest sporting moments of the year. It would be better if we had video, but sadly we are just radio. But um, this, uh, th th this is, concerns a gentleman called Asif Ali of Illingworth Cricket Club, and some listeners may have seen this. Who uh, he, he, he plays for Illingworth in the Halifax League, formerly of the Airdale and Wharfdale League. In a particular game, which fortunately was recorded and it's available on YouTube, he timed a hook shot to perfection, lofting the ball into the car park, where it landed with unerring accuracy on the windscreen of a car, which turned out to be not just any old windscreen, but, yes, you've guessed it, on the windscreen of his own car. So the <laughs> ball went through his own uh, his own windscreen. It's, it's happened elsewhere, but I don't know that it's ever been filmed anywhere, anywhere else. So if anybody wants to have a look at it, just uh, Google or, or go to YouTube and uh, put in Asif Ali of Illingworth Cricket Club and I can guarantee you a couple of minutes of uh, high amusement. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Bernie. Fantastic. Stuart. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I'll put a bit extra in just like Bernie, because I've, I've got a sort of a personal best moment, worst moment that happened within 24 hours. Um, the um, final round of the Cricket County Championship um, back in uh, September, um, Lancashire pulled off a fantastic victory against Hampshire uh, in three days. Hampshire, had they won uh, the game at uh, in Liverpool, would have been county championships winners themselves. <coughs> uh, Lancashire had to win to retain the chance of winning the championship. And uh, Lancashire, in gathering gloom, uh, won by one wicket. Uh, and the tension in uh, my living room was uh, you, you could have cut it with a knife as I watched the last half hours out as Lancashire looked to be cruising to victory and then lost wickets regularly but uh, uh, managed to get over the line by uh, um, by one wicket and then the following day just needed Somerset to uh, <coughs> to uh, secure a draw against Warwickshire for Lancashire to win the county championship but of course Somerset um, who were clearly you know just just Yellow, I think that's the only colour. Let, Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Just folded. They folded. Stuart, <laughs> let it go. In a really Medium <laughs> Warwickshire attack, they folded, and uh, Warwickshire very unjustly and undeservedly won the county championship pennant. And so, instead, moment moment of the year for me. Well, I'm a horse racing fan, and uh, it was great to see Rachel Blackmore, uh, who is. Um, who is one of the top jockeys in the world and I'm I'm, I'm making no uh, split there between male and female she is one of the top jockeys uh, in the in the business and it was great to see her win win the grand national and become the first female jockey to win the grand national on a horse called Manila Times and uh, it was the first time that Manila Times had been over the uh, been over the national fences, talked to them like a duck to water, and she just rode the perfect race. And uh, just watching that race, you could see from a circuit out that she she was comfortable, the horse was comfortable, and that she was going to win that race. And it was a, it was a great moment actually. 
for to break that particular glass ceiling. And uh, I've mentioned it before, personality of the year for me, Tom Daly, uh, winning a gold medal at his fourth Olympics. Oh, that was that brought a tear to my eye, actually. And uh, yeah. I thought it was a great performance. I, I hear what everybody said about Emma Raducanu, uh, and I'm sure she'll go on to do great things. But uh, uh, for him to show that uh, uh, that resilience uh, that uh, over you know four Olympiads, I think, is is a real tribute to him. He should be, I'm sure he's proud. He should be justifiably proud of himself. Uh, and it was, for me, he uh, is without doubt the personality of the year. Thank you. Cheers, Stuart. Um, I'll just put my two pennies in. Um, I think sports personality is uh, Emma Raducanu. I think um, such an amazing achievement. And to do it in America as well, um, absolutely fantastic. Um, my moment of the season... Uh, well, moment of the year, sorry, was probably when Luke Shaw put England 1-0 up in the final of Euro 2020. Um, but also on a on a very personal um, level, being at a football game with a crowd again, um, it was the opening day of the season. It was down in Barnet. It was Barnet nil, Notts County 5. And just <laughs> being... In that crowd and just seeing a game of football as a fan again after what we've been through, um, that moment for me will live. It was it was amazing to be there. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. It's great being back, but let's hope we are still being able to go back and watch football um, in the new year um, with Omicron and COVID and, and well, this government. Who knows what's going to happen? Um <clears throat> We'll have to cut it there. It's um, 2021 has just gone like that, as has the past hour. Um, so just want to say thank you very much to Stuart, to Bernie and to Tony and to the Tesco driver. And uh, we'll um, we, we will. You couldn't have timed it, it better. <laughs> yeah, we will leave it there for this year. Um, the sport huddle will be back in the new year. Um, with all the usual um, top quality, I mean, usual rubbish um, that you hear from us on a regular basis. Uh, guys, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you Ian. You're very welcome. Yes. Merry Christmas. Happy New yes. Year. Yes, and Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. Absolutely. Thank and you. Happy New Year.